History's greatest cover-up. All through the centuries and all through the years, there's always been cover-ups. But this one here is going to surprise you, and it may even revive your belief in God. So go get your Bibles, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Now, before we begin our study and our message proper, we are going to pray because this study is going to be kind of hard for some people to to accept, and for some people it's going to be bite to the core. <clears throat> so we're going to pray, Lord. Father in heaven, thank you so much for letting us come before you, God. My one prayer, Lord, is to please open our hearts, open our minds, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. This we pray in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. History's greatest, greatest cover-up is, is our study. And uh, today's subject is about history's greatest cover-up. And, and it focuses about a fact that God instructs mankind to worship him on the seventh day of the week. But as usual, Satan always counterfeits God's instructions. And Satan's instructions are, are worship God any day you want, as long as it's not God's day. Now, before we begin, let's repeat our theme together for these studies. And that's about how we're going to arrive at truth. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it's not in the Bible, it's not for me. On May 7, 1915, the British ocean liner Lusitania was sunk by a German submarine off the coast of Europe, drowning 1,200 innocent people. This is one of the events that drew the United States into World War I. Now, the sinking of this passenger ship was a barbaric act. And for decades, history books recorded that the Germans savagely sunk this innocent ship filled only with civilian passengers. Well, it's no wonder the United States entered the war. Now, the world learned 50 years later about this incredible cover-up. Now, inside this luxury liner were 4,200 cases of ammunition. This innocent passenger ship was carrying weapons of war, and it made it, in fact, a legitimate target for that submarine in the Atlantic. The public was, was shocked and astonished to learn that they'd been lied to for decades. Now, do we ever wonder if some of the things that we believe all our lives are simply just wrong? I mean, it's not easy to learn and accept the new truth. About 500 years ago now, Galileo was nearly burned at the stake because he said the earth actually was rotating, and for centuries, tradition said that the earth stood still. People didn't want to learn anything different from what they believed all their lives. And it is true that old habits do die hard, even when they're proved and they're based on false information. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about a tradition a belief, a custom, a habit that's been long entrenched in Christianity that, that's as wrong as the belief that the sun moves around the earth instead of the earth around the sun. Now, we must be careful when we're holding on to tradition over truth. Jesus himself warned about this in Matthew 15, verse 9. He said, And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Is it possible that some of the churches today are doing the same thing? just as the church did in Jesus' time teaching his doctrines the commandments of men above the commandments of God? Now, many here today are going to have to decide between God's commandments and the traditions of man. Now, in our study a few weeks back, the prophet Daniel, he gave us a view of the world's history. We saw four great world kingdoms which began in Daniel's day and came right down to our time and beyond. And they were Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Then the splintering of the nations culminating in the second coming of Jesus. Today we're going to look at another prophecy of Daniel that covers the same sequence of kingdoms, the same historical events, but in greater detail. 
Now, to begin, Daniel himself has a dream. Now, what is this dream about? We read about this in Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Now, my recommendation, my friends, to you guys is to read the entire chapter of Daniel chapter 7, because most of our study will be coming out of Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, notice the elements in his dream. We have the four winds of heaven, a great sea, four beasts coming up from the sea. So what do these mean? Well, winds in Bible prophecy are often used to, to symbolize war, strife, and violence. Jeremiah 49, verse 36 and 37 is an example of this use. Now, Daniel sees something coming that involves war, violence, and strife. In other words, it's not a pretty picture. Next, we see the great sea in Bible prophecy. It symbolizes people, nations, and great multitudes. Revelation 17, 15 is this use of it. The waters which you saw are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, what are these four great beasts? Daniel clearly tells us in Daniel verse 17 in Daniel 7. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. Now, you remember that four world empires that, we were, that were depicted in Daniel 2? We're going to see these empires are the same four that arise amid this great strife and violence among this vast multitudes. Now, verse 4 in Daniel 7. The first was like a lion and had great and had eagle's wings. Now, we often view the lion as the king of the beast. In Daniel chapter 2, the head on the statue was made of gold, which is the most precious of all subsequent matters. Metals, I'm saying. Now, as the gold head represented was represented in Babylon, Daniel 2, so does the lion in Daniel chapter 7. So we see the lion is a symbol of ancient Babylon, which ruled the then-known world from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. Next, in Daniel's dream, came the bear. In Daniel 7, verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. Now, history shows that after the fall of Babylon, that the great Medo-Persian Empire arose. And it was represented by the breasts and arms of silver in Daniel 2. In Daniel 7, it says the bear is raised up on one side. History tells us that the Persians became the dominant power in this political relationship. Medo-Persia ruled from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C. Now we see Babylon's the lion, the Medo-Persian bear. Next is the leopard beast that appears in Daniel verse 6 of chapter 7. Now after this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads. When we think of the leopard, think of speed. The leopard is very fast, and this one is especially fast because guess what? It has wings. The leopard is an excellent symbol of the swift conquest of the Greeks under Alexander the Great. While still in his 30s, he reportedly wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Now, Greece is his third power of belly and thighs of bronze in Daniel 2. It was Greece that overthrew the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, what do the four heads of the leopard mean? Interestingly, when Alexander the Great died at the age of 33, his empire was divided into four kingdoms that were ruled by what? Four generals. Greece, under Alexander the Great and his generals, ruled the world from 331 B.C. to 168 B.C. Now, now we come to the fourth and final beast, 
the one that came up after Greece, whose power extended all the way to the end of time. In Daniel chapter 7 of 7, this is what it says. After this, I saw in the night vision that behold, the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was a different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, later in the vision, Daniel interprets it like this. He says, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it into pieces. This is in Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. Now, what is this fourth beast power that arose after Greece? Remember the image in Daniel 2? That was represented by the iron, the hardest of all metals. Now we see this iron again. We see the iron teeth. Now what power is this? It's pagan Roman Empire. They overthrew the Greeks. They ruled ancient, the ancient world from 168 BC until 476 AD. So just as in Daniel chapter 2, we see the sequence. The same sequence, the same four empires. We see Babylon, Medo-Persia. Greece, and Rome. In Daniel 7, the first three powers have come and gone. Now the rest of the chapter focuses on this fourth beast power. The main focus of Daniel 7 is the fourth beast power. So obviously, there's something here that God wants us to know. So listen carefully, and we're going to discover what that is. Now remember in Daniel chapter 2, we saw the legs of iron, the feet to the toes were iron and mixed with clay? They represented the nations of modern Europe. Now, unlike all other great powers, the iron power extends all the way to the end of time. Now, notice something else about the fourth beast in Daniel 7, verse 7. It said it had ten horns. Now, what were these horns? Prophecy tells us the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. Now, as in Daniel chapter 2, the Roman Empire was never replaced with a whole new empire. It broke up into smaller nations, and guess what? It eventually became modern Europe. History, it tells us that the barbarian tribes swept down, they dismantled pagan Rome, and the modern Europe was the result of that. Now, seven of those tribes can be traced to countries to present-day Europe. Now, what happened to the other three? The Bible says this. A little horn power arises amid ten horns and uproots three of them. You got that. It uprooted them. When you uproot something, when you take something from its roots, it does not grow back. So these three, the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, and the Herali, are destroyed. They no longer exist to this day. I was considering, the Bible says this, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Daniel 7 verse 8. So we see the history does show these three tribes were indeed destroyed, just as the Bible had predicted. And it only left seven to survive. Now, what is this little horn power that arises among these other ones? Think about this now. Its identification has to be important because the Bible gives us many, many details about it. First, we see that it's part of the fourth beast of Rome, and it indeed rises out of the head of that beast. Two, it uproots three kings. Three, 
It has eyes like a man. Four, the little horn has a mouth speaking pompous words. And in Daniel 7, verse 25, he says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. In other words, it is a blasphemous power speaking words against God. We can see that this is a religious element with this power. Five, prophecy says that this power was greater than his fellows, that it is stronger than other powers. Six, Daniel says, this little horn power was different from all of the kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth. This little horn power was different from the others. Seven, he said the little horn power will persecute the saints of the Most High. In other words, it would be a persecuting power. Eight, prophecy said God's people would be given into its hands this power for a time, a times, and a half a time. Now, a defined, a defined period of time, in other words, that's what that means. In a defined period of time, it would be the saints would be giving into, into the hands of this beast power. Nine, this little horn power shall intend to change, to change times and law. Listen to this one now. Number nine is, this little horn power shall intend to change times and law. Now, isn't it fascinating that God has given us nine specific details about this little horn? God must really want us to know what it is. Now, dig deep now and listen to this. Are you ready, my friend? Are you ready to follow truth wherever it takes you? Of course you are. So let's continue. Now, as we see the sequence of these kingdoms in Daniel 7, it goes like this. It goes Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, then the little horn power. If we were to have a chart, you would see that all these kingdoms are separate, except we have this little horn power that's linked to pagan Rome as part of it. So, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece are separate powers, and we have this little horn power that's linked to pagan Rome. Remember, remember that. It's linked to pagan Rome. And why is that? That's because that little horn power is Roman power. It was, ne it was never a separate kingdom as all the others are. It's not. It's part of the fourth beast of pagan Rome. Oh. Now, what is this little powerful horn? What is this powerful little horn that comes out of pagan, the pagan Roman Empire? And it, guess what? And, and, it dur and it endures for centuries. Well, if you give me a minute... I'll give you the answer. So we'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Are you ready now? Are you ready for this? It's going to shock a lot of people. But I want people to understand that we're not attacking the people. We're attacking a system of worship that, is, that goes against many of the things that God, believe, uh, God set aside for us. Now, history shows that the only power that fits all these identifying marks is Papal Rome. The great ecclesiastical dominion that rose up in the place of the pagan Roman Empire. And it's a well-established historical fact that the papacy is the power that took over after the fall of pagan Rome. I mean, after all, it is known as the Roman Catholic Church because it simply picked up where pagan Rome left off. A church historian wrote this, the mighty Catholic Church was little more than the Roman Empire baptized. The very capital of the old empire became the capital of the Christian Empire. The office of Pontifex Maximus, the name of the chief priest of pagan Rome, 
was continued in that of the Pope. Even the Roman language has remained the official language of the Roman Catholic Church down through the ages. This is the book, The Rise of the Medieval Church, by Alexander Clarence Flick. Now, notice how the papacy fits all the descriptions of the little horn power, my friends. Here we go. First, remember, the little horn was always part of the fourth beast. We know it today as the Roman Catholic Church. Second, the little horn would uproot three kings, and that's exactly what happened when the Roman Church was finally able to consolidate political power after eliminating three kingdoms that opposed it. Third, it would have eyes like a man, which represents the office of the Pope, the undisputed power at the head of the Catholic Church. Four, the power would speak great words against God, and historically, when we study the role of the papacy, we see that it takes upon itself the authority to do things that only God can do. And here's an example. In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus forgave the sins of a man, the, the religious leader said this in Mark chapter 2, verse 6. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Yes, friends, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus could do this because he was God. Now, let me read you a quote from the New Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is the newest and latest catechism that was published by the Church. Now, look what it says. There is no offense, no matter how serious, that the Church cannot forgive. No sin that the Church cannot forgive? Sorry, my friend, but, but no Church can forgive sin. Sin can only be forgiven by God alone. And that statement in the Catechism is blasphemous. Now, here's another one. The church is Catholic. She proclaims the fullness of faith. She bears in herself and administers the totality of the means of salvation. Friend, the totality of the means of salvation is found only in the shed blood of Jesus, not in any church. So we see here that the little horn power speaks blasphemy just like the prophecy predicted. And five, Five, the little horn was greater than other horns. As we know, Papal Rome was a major force in bringing down communism and continues to be a major force on the world scene. As six, the little horn was different from others. And indeed it is. While it has only a little bit of property in the city of Rome, but yet, guess what? It rules over the lives of millions of people all around the world and countries and in every continent. Seven, the little horn power would persecute the saints of the Most High. Sadly, my friends, world history attests only too well to this violent history the papacy has had over the centuries. When we think about it, we think of the Inquisition, the Crusades, the persecutions of the Protestants and the dissenters. Rome fits this prophecy perfectly. Eight, Scripture depicts the period of the little horn's activity at a time, times and a half a time. Now, Bible scholars understand this to be another way of saying 1,260 days or years. The Thomas Nelson Study Bible says, A time and a time and a dividing of time is an expression used in Daniel and in Revelation to refer to three and a half years or 1,260 days or 42 months. Now, if you remember the studies back, you know that in the Bible prophecy that days represent a year. It's called the day and year principle. In Bible prophecy, a day is used to represent a year. Each day for a year, Numbers 14.34. I have appointed thee each day for a year, Ezekiel 4, verse 6. Write these down, my friends. 
So what do we have? We have 1,260 days, which equals 1,260 years. And of course, that's the period of time that the papal power had complete power and ruled. In fact, we can pin down these dates. In 538 AD, the last of those other horns were uprooted and the papacy started to gain, gain this great power. Now, exactly 1,260 years later, in 1798, it lost its power when the French General Berthier took the Pope captive. In fact, in the book published in 1990, Malachi Martin wrote this. He's a Catholic scholar. He said that it was the purpose of Pope John Paul's pontificate to free the papacy from the straitjacket of inactivity in world affairs imposed upon it by major secular powers for the past 200 years. Can you see all the identifying marks here, friends? It's not just one or two, it's many. And they're all affirmed for us in history. I mean, God obviously wants us to know about the role of this little horn power. Now, like I said before, my friends, please note, we're not talking against individuals, my friends, who are members of this church, no. No, we are dealing here only with the system that's specifically described here in the Bible. But there's one more identifying mark here that focuses at the heart of today's message, my friends, about keeping the traditions of men over the commandments of God. The ninth and final characteristics we want to look at that this little horn power would think to change times and laws. What times? What laws? Now listen carefully because we're going to get to the real important issue. Was there any law or time of importance that Rome thought to change? Can we pin this down like other characteristics? For those of you who remember our previous study, remember the study about the seventh-day Sabbath? We saw first that the seventh-day Sabbath was not Jewish, that it was first created back in Eden, long before there was a Jewish nation. Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3 says, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. We saw that God made the seventh day special, even before sin, even before there was ever a Jew or a Jewish nation. We also saw throughout his earthly life that Jesus kept the Sabbath day. Luke 4.16 says, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Not once, my friends, not once did he ever give a hint that he was changing it. Further, we saw that Jesus was talking about this an event that would take place until more than 40 years after his death. And he described the Sabbath as still binding. Matthew 24, 20 says, And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. Then we learn that in the days of the early New Testament church, the seventh day was the day that all the Christians kept sacred. There are 84, my friend, 84 references in the New Testament about the followers of Jesus keeping the seventh day Sabbath. And no, no indication whatsoever of any change. In fact, you can review the entire New Testament. Not one verse anywhere was saying that the seventh-day Sabbath had been changed. But if that's true, if Jesus never changed the Sabbath day to Sunday, if Paul never changed the Sabbath day to Sunday, if none of the New Testament writers changed it, yet it was observed by many Christians over the world, then who changed it? I'm going to read you a quote from the Roman Catholic source. The Church of God has thought it well to transfer the celebration and the observance of Sabbath to Sunday. 
This is the Catechism of the Council of Trent. The church thought well to change the Sabbath to Sunday. Remember, he says, he shall think to change times and laws. Isn't that the ninth characteristic of the little horn power? Here's another source, another Catholic source here. Which is, question, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Cardinal Peter Gearman's Converts Catechism. He shall think to change times and law. That is what the Bible prophecy predicted. When asked about the Roman Church's authority to institute certain festivals, the Church responded in a doctrinal catechism, page 174, had she not such power, she could not have done that in which all modern religionists agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day, a change for which there is no scriptural authority. Who has the authority to change the law of God? No one. Certainly no church, unless that, institu unless that institution thought that it would take the place of God. Now, Paul, Paul had warned us about this. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless she, unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. The seventh-day Sabbath points to God as creator. God, my friends, is God because he is our creator. And to change that symbol of God's authority is, is to rebel against the very authority of God himself. The Sabbath isn't simply about a day. It's about God's authority. The attempted change of the Sabbath is to attack that authority, the authority of God. By seizing an authority that belongs only to God, the little horn power attempted to take the place of God. The Bible puts it this way. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God? Second Thessalonians 2 verse 4. Remember the Bible text that we looked at earlier? And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Keeping holy the seventh-day Sabbath is a command of God. Doing so on the first day is a commandment of men. Now, is it your desire to put God's will first in your life? Isn't it, my friend? That's why you've been here listening to these studies. John wrote this in 1 John 2, 4. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, do you know that right now, all over the world, there's a, there are millions and millions of Christians that are keeping holy the seventh-day Sabbath? That's right. There's millions. They don't do it to be saved or to earn merit with God. No, they do it because they love God. They want to obey his commandments rather than the commandments of man. The question each of us must answer is this, whether we choose to follow man-made traditions or, or God's commandments. Millions of other Christians have, have already made the choice on this matter and they, they've chosen the commandments of Jesus. And you and I can choose to be among them too, my friends. I'd like to call your attention to this Bible text that we saw earlier that describes God's faithful people 
living near the end time. And here's how it reads. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Revelation 14, 12. My friend, don't you want to be numbered with God's people? Of course you do. Of course you do. And what does Jesus tell us? If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Do you love Jesus, my friend? Do you want to keep his commandments or, or the commandments of the little horn power? Again, friends, the real issue isn't about a day. The real issue is about loyalty. God tells us to keep holy the seventh day. Not the first day or any other day, but the seventh. Friend, I believe God means what he says, my friends. I believe he means what he says. Don't you? Now, if we accept Jesus as our Savior and believe that his death on the cross is our only hope of salvation, then we're going to show our love by obeying him as our Lord as well. If we say he is our Savior, that yet we reject him as our Lord by following our own opinion, we see evidence that we've not accepted him as Savior. It's not enough to say that we believe in Jesus. I mean, the Bible says that the devil believes too, and he, and he trembles. No, the deeper question is, do we love Jesus enough to obey him no matter what the cost? To obey all of his commandments. Before I close, I want you to consider this parable that Jesus told us. This is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and verse 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth these things of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock. Everyone that heareth these things of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Do you notice the difference here? Both heard the words of Jesus. Both built houses. But only one obeyed Jesus, and his house withstood the storm. The other, he didn't obey. And guess what? His house, it was swept away when the storm came. Where do you want to build your house, my friends? Do you want to build it on the rock of Jesus and obeying his commands, or do you, or do you want to build it on the tr traditions and doctrines of men? And that's the choice that we have here. That's the choice we have here. What will your choice be? The real issue in all of this is, who is going to be our God? Who are we going to worship and obey? The sovereign creator of the universe? Or are we going to say, yes, Lord, but it seems to me, and place our opinions above God. I invite you, my friends, like Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're going to follow the God of creation. Are you ready? Are you ready to take your stand on God's side today? We'll be right back with closing prayer. Hello, friends. Welcome back. I know this was a hard study, but I promise you, no, no offense to anyone, I just want everyone to know that there is God's people in every denomination. To want to hear that one more time, there are, God's people are in every church. He knows who they are. So with that, let us close. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. It is so powerful. That, and we have studied some truly amazing things here today, Lord. Bring conviction to our hearts concerning these truths, Lord. Thank you so much for that. 
we love you. We want to be faithful to you, Father. We, we want to follow you in your commandments, not, not the commandments of men. Thank you for making the Sabbath truth so clear, Lord. I ask you, God, to be with each and every one of us. Guide us throughout the week, Lord, and there are some here that have been convicted to the heart. Be with them, Father. Stay with them and embrace them. Let them know that you're going to be with them. This great leap of faith, Father, that we have. The devil is going to certainly try to cause them problems, Lord. He's going to challenge them, but I ask you, God, to be with them in this loving relationship that they want to have with you. Be with our children, our family, and friends and throughout this whole week, Father. Thank you for all you've done for us. And forgive us for our sins, Lord. We pray that we are able to come and be maybe with you again, Father. In Jesus' name I pray to you, Lord. Amen. Friends, thank you for joining me. And our next study is going to be Walking with God. Um, until next time, this is Robert with our and our time in God's word. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you. May the Lord hold you in his hand. May the Lord richly embrace you. May his holy angels protect you. Until next time, this is Robert. Have a great week.